Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. It's a quote that's attributed to Roman philosopher Lucius Senea Seneca. But more than likely for most of us, it was made popular back in 1998 um, when it was used by a man named Dan Wilson and performed in a song by the group Semisonic. Um, You've got to be a certain age to understand that, I'm sure. But it perfectly describes, I, I couldn't get it out of my, out of my mind. I, I told Aaron that I was going to start with that, and he kind of rolled his eyes. But, um, but it perfectly describes what's going on here in our text. Because something was ending. But out of that ending, something was also beginning. What had started at Christ's coming would come to a close at His going. But His going was the end of a chapter, not the end of a story. So while one chapter was ending, a new chapter was beginning. This was a new chapter in the history of redemption. Just as His coming had marked the end of the Old Testament, as well as the beginning of the new, his going would mark the end of his earthly ministry, but mark the beginning of his heavenly one. There are three things that I want us to see tonight in our text. First, I want us to see, and by the way, this is concluding our study of Luke, 84 weeks. We're going to see three things. We're going to look at the conclusion of Christ's earthly ministry. We're going to look at the beginning of. Uh, we're going to look at yeah, the the conclusion of his earthly ministry, the beginning of his heavenly ministry, and then we're going to take a, just a, a moment to look at the beginning of our earthly ministry. All of that happens here in our text. The outline's in its normal place. Uh, the words "children" are in their normal place. Uh, so let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer before we begin. All right. Father, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your Word. Grant us the ability to uh, apprehend and appraise your truth. We ask that you would awaken our attention and, o- and, and open um, our sorrows, even, and convict us and challenge us, and then we pray that you would refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear His gospel tonight. I'm weak and unfit for this task, as always, to which you have called me, and I am in need of your support, strength, and the filling of your Spirit and your grace that I might do something good for you and for your people. So may that be so. I pray these things in the name of Christ, for His sake and for His church. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask the question because I think I'm going to ask it. I don't know that you would remember after 84 weeks. It's the same question that I asked when we began. And that question is this. Who here has ever doubted the truth of the Bible in general, the message of the gospel specifically, and your salvation personally? I don't want a show of hands. I asked the question in such a way that I think we all could, in fact, raise our hands whether we could answer all three questions or only one. 
I believe um, more than likely everyone has doubted all three, if maybe only one. All of us at one time or another could or would or have sounded like the man in Mark 9, I believe, but help my unbelief. For some, it's a rare occurrence. For some, it happens more frequently. For others, it is a common struggle. Because even though now as believers, we're all prone, of course, to follow and obey Christ by God's grace and and by the power of of the regenerating and ongoing sanctifying work of the Spirit, we remain at times, in the words of the hymn writer Robert Robinson, prone to wander. Right? Lord, I feel it. As sheep, we stray from the love and the provision and protection of the great shepherd because our minds tend to wander as we wonder if what we have professed to believe is actually true. The questions swirl around in our minds. But I get that. I get that because, let's think about this for a minute. An infinite, eternal, triune, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, self-sufficient, wise, holy, just, good, merciful, gracious, and loving God created us. And He created us so that we could dwell, so that He could dwell among us and we could fellowship with Him. It's astonishing. And He desired that so much that despite our doubt and despite our disobedience and despite our offense and rebellion and rejection, He purposed and then initiated and completed a redemptive plan that would restore us and would salvage us from the point of of where our purpose had been lost. And it was a plan like any other, unlike any other, that any man could have come up with. It was more than anybody in this room or anyone else could have conceived or conceived of because this plan did not include any attempt on our part, on your part or my part, to ascend into His presence. Right? We sang just a minute ago, who will ascend the hill? It, it didn't include any attempt to successfully attain or merit or, or qualify for reinstatement. It didn't, it didn't include any plan to accomplish any work to satisfy our debt that we owed. It didn't include anything about us or what we could do. His plan included not just a, a descent, but a condescension of the eternal Son who took on flesh and became man to be our perfect substitute. To obey in ways that we could never obey and to die on a cross, to die a death that to pay a debt we could never pay. It would be His righteousness, it would be His perfect work that would be credited to us and that would cause us to be justified and declared holy and righteous and therefore not guilty. It would be His death through which our sin would be atoned for. 
and our debt would be paid and therefore we would be forgiven. It would be on Him that our sin was laid. It was in Him that our redemption and adoption was secured. And it was in Him that our status and position was changed forever. We're no longer enemies, but sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters who will dwell with and fellowship with Him forever. And the faith through which we not only believe that to be true, but through which all the benefits of that gospel is received is a gift from Him as well. It's a gift of His grace. It's hard to believe because all of that is so God-centered. None of that is man-centered. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, it doesn't take much for us to wander away into some man-centered plan, some man-centered plan that makes more of us and more of our ability and less of Him and less of our need and less of Christ. So we need to be reminded on a regular basis over and over and over again that this redemptive plan is true. And that's why Luke wrote this gospel. Luke wrote the gospel, this orderly, verifiable, purposeful account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ so that we might be, we may be certain. And throughout the study of this account, we have not only hopefully gained a greater grasp on the gospel, hopefully we've also gained a greater grip upon theological topics such as the virgin birth, and the incarnation, the deity of Christ, the uh, sinlessness of Christ, justification by faith alone, sanctification, obedience, perseverance, uh, preservation of the saints, God's sovereignty, prayer, God's kingdom, substitutionary atonement, the second coming, judgment, resurrection, the inspiration and continuity of Scripture, and I could go on and on and on. Now, one of the distinctive elements, and I, and I think I, uh, looking back, I tried to look th- through all uh, 80 that I have, um, messages, um, so I may have touched on this just a bit, but one of the th- elements that runs throughout this gospel is the emphasis that Luke places upon uh, the table, meals, feasts, and banquets. And I think you probably would recognize that if you think back. Uh, They move the narrative along. Uh, They provide a setting for the major teaching moments throughout this gospel. On at least eight different occasions, we've seen Jesus sitting down with meals at others, and then there are two other places where those meals are alluded to or that we infer took place, or they're implied. And we've seen Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and disciples and men and women, uh, friends and strangers. And the meals that we've seen in Luke 10, 11, 14, 19, and 24 are unique to His gospel. 
the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke 9 and the Last Supper in Luke 22 can be found in uh, all four Gospels, and the accounts in Luke 5 and 7 have some parallels in other Gospels. And in each case, Jesus, again, used, used those occasions to teach. And we ask ourselves, why? Why would he, why would he do that? And, and we really need to go back to the Old Testament to answer that question, to kind of see this theme and where it is that Luke is, why he picked it up, really. He, he didn't create it on his own. He picked up something that had already been happening. Again, remember the culmination and, and goal of creation was God's people dwelling in God's presence, right? and, and God dwelling among His people, and then fellowship, uh, fellowshipping together, experiencing the Sabbath rest, and part of that rest and part of that enjoyment and fellowship was eating and drinking together. But you'll also remember that Adam and Eve rejected the banquet God prepared before them, right? A banquet of every tree in the garden but one. And Adam and Eve decided, well, we're just going to eat, we're going to eat of, of, of the one, and we're going to eat without the one. We're just going to do this alone. The one who provided the meal, the one who encouraged them to enjoy it, they're, they're leaving him out. And from that point forward, the story of redemption is about God reestablishing the Sabbath rest, reestablishing that fellowship in which they would dwell with Him and He with us, the fellowship in which we would eat and drink together. We move forward and we can look, we can look back, but move forward in the Old Testament and we can remember the golden calf debacle. Where Moses, after which Moses fasts and prays that God would relent and not destroy the people, and then he ratifies the covenant with a meal. We can look back and move forward in the Old Testament and, and see, you remember from our study of Leviticus, God established five feasts to establish this Sabbath feasting, uh, Sabbath feasting rhythm. And we... And we see how God, or we saw how God put the bread of the presence on the table there in the tabernacle as a perpetual reminder of God's provision. We saw how He included a peace offering in the sacrificial system, which could be given uh, any time. That, that, that sacrifice could be given at any point in time, any time someone wanted to uh, celebrate the peace that they enjoyed with God, and only half the cereal was used, only half the meat was used, and the rest was, was used as, and, and could be eaten by those who brought the sacrifice, and not only those who had eaten, but those who had, were just in the vicinity and wanted to join in. It was a celebration of being at peace with God, right? That celebration was worth a feast. And then we can look back as we move forward while Israel wandered in the wilderness, right, God provided manna, and He turned bitter water into sweet water and provided water from a rock to provide for His people as if He was preparing the table with a feast that would be theirs in the promised land, a promised land that was full of milk and honey. But not only do they complain and reject the manna and reject the water, they also sent spies into the land, and the spies returned with the first fruits. And what do the people do? They reject it. 
They fail to trust the Lord, and as a result, only a remnant enters. Then we can move forward into the prophets, and we look back, and we see where failure to obey or to turn and follow the Lord led to the opposite of milk and honey. It's described, you know, failure, rejection of the Lord and, and failure to obey is described as famine and wasteland and devastation. All the while, the new covenant is, and salvation is described as a banquet. One example is in Isaiah 25. God, through the prophet, says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away, away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And that's just a a, a brief overview, right? And when we we read those things, when we remember those things, it... It makes sense when we come to the new Moses that Jesus, he did what Adam and Moses and Israel failed to do. He refused to cower to his enemies. He, he didn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the, mouth, uh, from, the, from the mouth of God. And he led his people into a land of milk and honey. We've seen in our study of Luke that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus through his personal ministry that did not include eating or drinking, but fasting. It's Luke 7. Because his message was a message of judgment and the drying up of the milk and honey. Jesus, on the other hand, came eating and drinking because His message was one of restoration and salvation, redemption. Right? He is the bridegroom, was and is present. God incarnate was and is in the midst of His people. Again, eating and drinking. The kingdom is now in their midst, in our midst. It's the kingdom of the already, and yet, of course, it's only a foretaste of the kingdom to come because the kingdom is also not yet. We saw, we've seen in our study, Jesus described himself as a stranger and a sojourner that his own people failed to be hospitable to, wouldn't invite him in. And we've seen him attend parties, but in the midst of those parties, he would, he would kind of take on the role of host. And what, he, what would he do? He would begin teaching. We've seen him describe himself as an owner of a house who was going to throw the grandest of all banquets, but change the guest list. The guest list of his included sinners and strangers and outcasts and the weak and the lowly and the poor and the refugee. And then he would tell parables or then he told parables condemning the bad stewards that had failed at their job. 
we've seen him describe himself as the son of a landowner, a landowner who hadn't been present. And while the landowner was away, the, those who were working the land became selfish, right, and wanted the fruit for themselves, the fruit that they had worked so hard to produce, forgetting that the landowner had done everything in his power to make sure the land would in fact produce. And when the sun showed up, they resented him. They judged him as an outcast and killed him. We've also seen him send out his own spies, right? his 70, who came back with positive reports. They were excited and joyful because the demons were in sub, uh, subjection to him, but he said, you know, there's more to it than that. He told them they should rejoice because their names were written in heaven. He said he would bind the one who plundered the house and that he would, in fact, cleanse the house because he had a zeal for the house. And all the while, all that's going on, and the disciples don't get it. It just goes right over their heads because they're too busy vying for positions of prominence. I want to sit on his right, I want to sit on his left. And over and over again, he's telling them, you need to focus on things that are eternal. You need to be prepared. You need to keep an eye on me. But they were so preoccupied that ultimately they failed to see that when they arrived in the upper room, that he had spread a banquet before them. And not just that night but throughout his ministry. A banquet before them. In the words of Michael Horton, he says, he spread his banquet in the wilderness on the verge of the promised land, his own death and resurrection, the new exodus. And unlike Moses, Jesus didn't fail. Jesus passed through the waters of judgment, took on the curse of the law, and died on their and our behalf. And all that brings us to chapter 24, where we've been the last three weeks. Verse 29, remember, um, Cleopas and his friend, what did they do? They invited the sojourner in. And then what did they do when they were inside? Verse 30 says they had dinner. And they broke bread. And then verse 35, when he broke bread, they recognized him for who he was. Having heard the spoken word on the road, they now understood who he was as he was revealed through the visible word. And then in verse 36, Luke says, Jesus appeared in their midst and said, peace be with you. Why does Luke end there? Right? And by the way, after he said, peace be with you, he took over the meal and started teaching again. (laughs) It's this repetitive pattern. And Luke wraps up with him in their midst, Christ in their midst, there in his presence, they're eating and drinking, and peace is theirs. That brings us to our text.
Let me read again what Luke says. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing him, blessing God. Right? The fullness of God and the fullness of time had come. And his earthly ministry, Christ's earthly ministry, all that he had been doing was complete. The eternal son had taken on flesh and he took on flesh in order for him to be one of us and to dwell among us. And he, he didn't simply come and hang out to be one of our homeboys. <laughs> right? He came to reconcile us to the Father and to restore fellowship that had been broken down due to our sin. That sin that had been imputed to us Adam's sin that had been imputed to us, and then our very own sin. And he had come to do what we could not do for ourselves. He had come to seek and save the lost. That's the, the key verse of the entire book, the entire letter. And his ministry and his mission were finally complete. He, he had accomplished it. His work was finished. He had been the ultimate priest. He had offered the ultimate sacrifice. He had offered himself and secured forgiveness that his people needed once and for all. Therefore, the only thing left for him to do was to raise his hands and to show the scars of the nails. And as they looked at those nail-scarred hands, he blessed them. And in that blessing, he assured them that their sins had been forgiven, that their sins had been atoned for, and they were at peace with God. His hands in the air, they, they see the scars, and they knew that the Father's work had been accepted on their behalf. The, 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 sons, the Father had accepted the Son's work on their behalf. He was announcing that they had been declared righteous. He was announcing that they were no longer God's enemies and that they had received the kingdom and they were now its citizens. Their entrance was through Him and His work on their behalf. And we ask ourselves, why do He have to leave? Well, if his earthly work was finished, why couldn't he have just stayed? Did he really have to go? And the answer is yes. He had to go. Because not only was his earthly ministry concluding, his heavenly ministry was beginning. You see, his ascension, we don't talk about it as, as much, and it, it's not good, shame to say that, but his ascension, we, we need to talk about it because his ascension was just as necessary as his incarnation and his resurrection. It was necessary for him to return from which he had come. It was necessary for him to ascend back to the place from where he had descended. He had to return to the right hand of the Father 
which was his rightful place and his right to claim. And he had to return. He had to return in bodily form. He had to return as the crucified and risen Savior and the glorified Christ who was both truly God and truly man. In the words of Francis Turretin, the the divine descended, but the human ascended. Clement of Alexandria once said he was carried up into heaven so that he might share the Father's throne even with the flesh that was united to him. And why? Because that means humanity now sits on the throne. Humanity has been exalted to the highest possible place, and it's why Paul says that we, having been united to Him, are seated with Him in heavenly places. That would not be possible apart from His incarnation. It would not be possible apart from His resurrection, and it would not be possible apart from His ascension. And having been united to Him as believers, and having been seated there, we have the assurance that our future is secure. Those of you who are with us through our study of Hebrews, you know that Christ, the writer of Hebrews said that Christ is our forerunner. And he went to heaven and he set an anchor. Grace, and the end of that anchor, that rope that's tied to the anchor is tethered around us. We're sure, we are assured of our place with Him, because we have not only died with Him, we have been raised with Him, and we have ascended with Him. And the place that we are now spiritually, we will one day be physically. In John 14, Jesus said that He was going to prepare a place for us. And in the fullness of time, He is going to return bodily just as he left bodily. And he's going to take us back with him bodily to enjoy that which he's prepared. And in the meantime, he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as king. He's exercising his supreme dominion and divine authority. He's been highly exalted, and He's holding all things together. He's ruling the church as its head. He stands at the throne as an advocate before the Father on our behalf, pleading for us. He stands before the Father, interceding for us and presenting our prayers to the Father. Question 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism sums it up this way. It says, how, the question is, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? The answer is, first, He's our advocate in heaven before the Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that He, our head, will also take us, His members, up to Himself. But that's not all the Catechism says. There's another way in which we benefit by the ascension, and it says, third, He sends us His Spirit as a counter pledge 
by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. If you've read John, you'll remember that back in John 14 and 16, when Jesus first told the disciples that he was going to have to leave, they got really, really sad. They didn't like the thought of it. They couldn't imagine him going. But he told them that it would be to their advantage if he did. And we scratch our heads. How in the world could it be to their advantage? How could it be to our advantage that Christ is not here? But remember, he said it would be to their advantage and it would be to our advantage because when he left, he and the Father would send the Spirit. And the Spirit was going to be a down payment. A down payment of the inheritance, a pledge of the inheritance that God Himself was saving for us, holding on for us. Those are both, it's an intermix of both Paul and Peter's words. The Spirit would also be, Jesus said, would also be their helper. And the helper wouldn't just be above them, hovering around above them, or hovering around them, or behind them, beside them. That spirit would be in them. The spirit would be in us. Paul puts it a little differently in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, or because in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Because Jesus remains in a earth, his uh, physical body, in his resurrection body. He, he can't be everywhere physically. Um, he can't be everywhere all the time, right? Physically speaking. But by his spirit, he is always with us. He's always with us because he is always in us by his spirit. He's physically absent, but he's spiritually present. Actually, he's closer to us now having ascended than he was prior to his ascension. He's closer now that he has ascended through the Spirit. Christ dwells within us because his Spirit dwells within us, and it doesn't get any closer than that. And that brings me to the last point. Look back at verse 45 from last week. Jesus said, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. When Christ ascended, not only did His earthly ministry end and His heavenly ministry begin, but our earthly ministry began. We've been sent as his disciples into all the world, and and we were to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. But but not only does his ascension begin our ministry, it, it assures the success of our ministry. Dr. Riken says, the ascension of Jesus Christ guarantees the effectiveness of our evangelism and the ultimate triumph of the gospel around the world, for in ascending to heaven, Jesus sent us the Spirit. Now by the Spirit, people all over the world are turning away from their sins to worship the ascended Son of God. It's the Spirit who applies the salvation that the Father promised and the Son accomplished. 
It's the Spirit who regenerates hearts. It's the Spirit who illuminates minds. It's the Spirit who convicts us of our sin and guilt. It's the Spirit who then comforts us as we mourn our sin and our guilt. And it's the Spirit who empowers and equips us for ministry through the granting of His fruit and His gifts. And thus we're called to walk and live by the Spirit. We're to live and walk in Him. Now two things, only two as we close not only tonight, but we wrap up this study. First, I want to encourage us all that our hope is in a risen and ascended Savior. Our eyes should be heavenward. It is because of the Spirit who has been given to us in the words, again, of the, of the Heidelberg, the Spirit who has been given to us, that we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Our gaze does not need to be horizontal. Our gaze does not to be inward. Our gaze is to be upward. Our gaze is to be heavenward. Our hope is in Christ, not a political party. Our hope is in Christ, not a Supreme Court decision. Our hope is in Christ, not the economy. Our hope is in Christ, not in our possessions. Our hope is in Christ, not the stock market. Our hope is in Christ, not our possessions or our jobs. Our hope is in Christ, not our spouses or marriages. Our hope is in Christ, not our performance. Our hope is not in anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. And because of that, all of His promises are yes and amen in Him. Secondly, verse 52 says, And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Again, remember, when He originally said, I'm leaving, they got sad. Now, when He actually leaves, they rejoice with great joy. Right? They worship at that moment, they worship on the road, and they worship continually in the temple. So we ask ourselves, what is the natural response to knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus? And the answer is worship. We're worshiping a risen and ascended Savior. We desire to boldly approach the throne of grace and are able to boldly approach the throne of grace again because He, as the, as the risen and ascended Savior, is there. Brothers and sisters, He is the eternal Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of David. He is the promised Messiah. 
He is the suffering servant. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. To Him we should look. Today and every day. Worship Him, beloved. He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the Word, this Word of Christ, this Word about Christ with faith and love. Enable us to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Father, I pray that if there is anyone in the room tonight that has not professed you as Lord, or who has not turned to you or turned to Him in faith, repented of their sins and accepted the forgiveness that He offers, I pray that tonight would be that night. May your spirit work in the hearts of your people. Bless all of us who have heard your word preached. And may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.